Good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for coming to the Filmmakers Live. This is my bi-weekly podcast that is for filmmakers who are looking to create a career in film and who want to um, benefit by learning how to raise the money that they need to get those films made. Uh, my name is Joanne Butcher. I am a business coach and fundraising expert, and I am so thrilled to have my very own client, Karen Reese, as my guest today. And um, Karen, I know, is nervous, but you don't need to be. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to be you've been on tv so, yeah. anyway but uh um when when i do these interviews uh the reason that i love to talk to filmmakers who are moving along in their careers is because a lot of filmmakers get stuck and don't really know how to move forward and so i like to to do these interviews and and let people see you know how you actually do it how people actually do it and karen is one of those people so karen so good to see you as always the last time i saw you we were in miami yes hey you were showing me around <laughs> and you were <laughs> showing your film at the Black Police Museum. Is that right? Yes. 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 Amazing. So anyway, we're not going to start there. That was very recent. We're going to start way at the beginning. And my question, my first question always is, when did you first know you were a filmmaker? Wow. Um, Sometimes I say I'm still learning that, but of it might have been it might have been when uh you told me. I mean, in 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 a clubhouse <laughs> group, uh, I was telling you about being passionate about making a film based on my uncle, and you know, you kind of say, "Well, you are a, a person that take these films to community. You are a filmmaker. You can you can uh, reach out to the community. You can share this message." I mean. And so once I got into your program and you kind of just kind of really honed that into me that I am a filmmaker. And so it's so hard sometimes to even say it. You know, Karen, hearing you say that just brought tears to my eyes, you know, and I, I tell a lot of people the story about the first time I met you in Clubhouse, you know, with Miss Tanya Kersey, who sadly has passed away. Oh. Um, but. Oh, you didn't know that. No. Oh, she passed away about a year and a half ago. Okay. Uh, yeah, right after she was on my podcast, actually. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that it just brings tears to my eyes because I can't, don't think of you as anything else except you're a filmmaker. And I know you do a lot of other things. Yeah. But now, I mean, that's... I just think of you as a filmmaker. Um, but at the time, you had so much longing uh, to tell these stories and not really any any path to know how to do it. So that's a very interesting answer. Or money. Or money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, the, the my memory of that first time that we met was uh, you you said, oh, I want to make a film about my uncle. And everybody in the group was sort of listening. And there were all these like big time producers there and everything that Tanya knew for a long time. And, um, you know, and I'm a coach, so I know how to sort of try to help people get, get things out. And I said, uh, well, you know, what does your uncle do? <laughs> you know? yeah. And then finally you said basketball and everybody's like, oh, I love basketball. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, yes. It was, and I didn't, but I didn't think, uh, you know, I didn't think of that story being something that could be used to um, make money from. I just used it. I just was just something that I wanted to hold precious that we you know, based on my family and based on my grandmother to be able to have a video that some our kids and grandkids could go back and look at it. But I didn't look at it as far as filmmaking and money and, you know, it continuously to bring people's stories to life. And so that's what you did for me. Thank you so much. Uh, no, that really did bring tears to my eyes. 
because you know I never know when I meet somebody you know I never know you know if if they can really be the the person who can actually take it all the way through to the end because I think you've probably learned now that it's hard work it's definitely hard work <laughs> I'm still learning it I'm still learning it but it hasn't taken the passion away of wanting uh -huh. to bring people's stories to life. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's good. It it even more passion <laughs> about it. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, I think that uh, also another thing that I remember when we had our first few sessions together, I remember saying, how, how many projects are you working on? <laughs> Right. Do you remember getting that first email and they were just like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And uh, just helping me just prioritize it and focus yes. on one thing at a time. Yes. Um, I think that's very common, Karen, because creatives um, even like to call themselves multi-talented. Multi I was talking to a filmmaker today and he's like, and I wrote it and I directed it and I edited it and I, as if that's like a great thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right oh my, uh, no uh this is a collaborative medium you know but um so i think you you had so many ideas and so many projects and uh i find this is a very common thing and so what was fun was when we kind of we prioritized and we decided okay we're working on this and i think i still could only get you down to two or maybe three films <laughs> <Right. laughs> to work on at the same time right. I didn't like, know how to turn that off. I, it was a right. time in my life that I mm. kind of just prayed and and I heard about God is always giving you ideas and it's about you hearing those ideas and starting them. And that became one of my prayers, like God give me a creative idea. And it came, it just kept going. And I thought I was supposed to start them all. And so that's mm. how I had so many different projects because everything he was giving me, I was starting them. But I, I remember that through wisdom, you learn that there's a season for everything and not everything is for you. Some things is for you to pass on to someone else that may be more specialized in that area that you can pass on to them to start and maybe just be an advisor with it. I mean, but that's all part of the learning, the journey of it. Yes. And, you know, it's not as though I wanted to argue with God, but um, that that whole thing of there are so many ideas and, and the idea that I have to do them all, it, it, it can be very painful. And actually, now that we're talking about it, I remember like before I was a coach, right? I haven't always been a coach. And you you know this, but I spent seven years of my life in bed too sick to work. And the pain, the pain of knowing that I was put on the planet to do something and I wasn't doing it and I couldn't do it and I didn't know how to do it. It was so painful and and I and I see that that all the time and so it could be somebody like me who's completely stopped and is in bed or somebody like you who's got like a million things and 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 it's difficult to focus but once we narrowed it down to I think three projects how many do you think <laughs> <laughs> yeah we got we got it down to three Three, right. We got right. it down to three. Right. Yes. Right. And it ended up that the one that really it ended up sort of taking the, the number one slot wasn't right. even the one that we had originally talked about. Right. 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 So what what um the so the one we originally talked about was about your uncle and he's in basketball. And tell us a little bit about that project. Well, my uncle has coached for over 40 years. He comes from a little town in Arkansas, Earl, Arkansas, and he um, won like six state championships. And it's a small school, um, but he, he's been able to win. And so his inspiration came from my grandmother uh, who couldn't drive. She would sell chickens out of her yards to get gas money in order to go to his college game. She actually encouraged him to go to college and he ended up playing college ball and being the first person that graduated from our family from college. And so I just, and then he ended up needing a kidney. 
And so that same motivation that he needed to motivate kids to win state championship, he had to use it within himself to fight to live and to, you know, to be able to, you know, stay positive and believe that one day he would get a kidney. And he did get a kidney and he ended up going to the Hall of Fame in Arkansas as a coach, as a player. And I'm like, I need to document that. That's something that represents legacy as a part of our family, part of my grandma's family. And I wanted to document and I wanted to be able to, for him to be able to pass along to his kids, 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 kids. Because this is during COVID. People were dying so quick. You couldn't right. remember what your grandparents told you. And so you needed film to, to be able to capture those moments that you could always go back and see. And so... That was my motivation. Wow. Somebody asked what your uncle's name is. His name is Billy Joe Murray. Billy Joe Murray. Even the name is great. Um, <laughs> and Karen, listening to you tell this story, I mean, you're such a fantastic storyteller, you know. And again, when I first met you, it was hard to get anything out of you. You know, it was very hard. And now you can just be so on point and so clear and so precise and so crisp. And we got it totally, right? We 100% got who your uncle is and why he's so special. And um, it's interesting because you were saying about legacy and wanting to tell that, that legacy and that story and that, that history of uh, of your family and your grandmother as well. The, the, that's wonderful, the chickens, selling the chickens so she could go to the game. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I've told many people now since I met you is, well, are you making this film for your cousins and your, you know, your family? Or is it made for a wider audience? And in fact, I just got an email Emily, you may notice this. I got an email from somebody who makes a living making films about people's legacy mm -hmm. so that they have something on film to hand down to their families. And that's his living. He does that as a living, right? That's really cool. That's um, I, I have a friend who does that in books. She, she writes family memoirs, uh, so they have that to, to hand down. Um, but... I think that you always had, again, I think of that longing. I had a longing to have that story go out beyond your family, yeah. right? Yeah. And and how how has how has that gone? Have have you been able to achieve that? Well, I in twenty twenty one was my grandma's birthday, and uh, in March of twenty twenty one, and so I did a screening back in my hometown. And to be able to go back home and share that history and invite people out, um, I I think it kind of solidified what you were saying about legacy and community. Because when I went back home, people was like, oh, this is so great. This is great to do that. And I never even looked at it like that. But it it just kind of shows that I, I had a heart for community and it's important to share those stories that are in your backyard. Sometimes we get so broad and we yes. see everything on TV, but there are some stories that are right in your backyard, your hometown that need to be shared and recorded. And so I think it's just kind of helping me develop that path that I'm going to be on when I make the money to be able to go make the film of those legacies. Yes, yes. Um, I, And I think that and I know this is something that I shared with you when we were talking about this question of audience, but I had this experience many years ago. So I have a friend, his name is Sergio Hiral. He's 87 years old now. He's an Afro-Cuban director and all his films that he made in Cuba were shot on 35 millimeter. They're just beautiful, extraordinary films. And they show the history of Afro-Cubans up until 1959 when the government said, uh, no, and he he defected and he came to America, and now he's he's in his late eighties. And when he first came to America, I was working at the college, and it was my job to be kind of the MC when we showed his films. And there were six films, six you know feature length films, and I'm used to doing this. You know me; I can talk 
to anybody. I can talk in front of anybody. And um, so the first film that we showed was um, uh, it showed uh, slaves being brought from Africa and, and, and the people chose to kill themselves by jumping off the ship rather than be, be held and things like that. And um, I own, I didn't understand what, what it was, but that night when I was supposed to MC and do a Q and A and everything, I couldn't speak. Mm. Now I, I don't know any other time in my life that I've been rendered speechless. Yeah. And so, you know, the event was over and everybody went home. So the next day I went to see Sergio in his office and I, I apologized, you know, for what had happened. And as we were talking, I realized it was the first time I had seen my ancestors on screen. So I'm not of Afro-Cuban descent, I'm of Afro-Trinidadian descent, mm. right? But that's the same thing. <laughs> you know, that was the that's the same thing. That's the and I had never seen it, and I was speechless from seeing my history on the screen. And so when you told me that you were going to be making a film about this um, person who is a, a hero to those people in O, a hero to the people in Arkansas, I was just like, I was so excited. I was like, oh, my God, you just can't imagine when people see their own story and their own people and their own history. Yeah. yeah. And. And what did people tell you after that first screening? What did they say? I mean, they, I mean, they just, they loved it. It just so happened that day it snowed in Arkansas, but people still fought to come out and they just loved it. And it was just encouraging to me that I felt like that I was on the right track. You know, sometimes you don't know whether what you started out doing is the right thing but it just kind of gave you affirmation, gave me affirmation that I was on the right track. It's important to share those stories. It's important. So, so the the film that ended up becoming the the sort of the number one priority wasn't even that film. <laughs> it was not the film we had started talking about, right? So, um, oh, by the way, is your film with your uncle finished or are you still working on that? Well, he got inducted to another Hall of Fame uh, at his college, uh, University of um, Arkansas, uh, Russellville. And so I need to go back and edit and add that to it. And um, and then I wanted to add a little bit more about his journey of needing a kidney. So it's, it mm -hmm. needs to be edited. And it's quite, instead of being 30 minutes short film, it might be 45 minutes. So I just need to edit it. Right, right. That one's going to get finished. So the one that the one that became the priority. Tell us a little bit about that one. Well, that is the Greenwood Avenue project. It is based on the aftermath of the 1921 Tusser massacre. It is based on the fact that the Greenwood uh, district rebuilt after the massacre, and it just shares about you know what they went through once they rebuilt, and then it fell down again. And so it shares why it fell down, fell, fell again. And so um, that was a story that I didn't even know about. I didn't even know about Black Wall Street, but because I was doing another project here in DeSoto, Texas, about my community and the importance of highlighting your community, someone in Tulsa said, hey, Mr. Terry Bacchus said, hey, why don't you come do Black Wall Street? And I'm like, what is Black Wall Street? Black Wall Street. I didn't know nothing about it. <laughs> and so my friend was like, maybe she was like, we they taught us a little bit in school. And I said, well, maybe that's when I was asleep because I did not, I, it wasn't something I really knew about it. And so he invited me down to Tulsa. And at that time, I actually, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you. I'm always interrupting people. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, before you go on, I just want to say, um, I just saw this video the other day. Who is that? Uh, oh, this big actor, Tom, not Tom Cruise, the very nice guy. The really, anyway, this big, big, big A-list actor. And he made a video and he was saying, how, why is it I didn't know about the Tulsa massacre? Oh, really? That's crazy. Why would we not be taught our own American history? 
in the school. I only just heard about Tom Hanks. That's who it was. Oh, yeah. Okay. Tom Hanks. Um, actually, that might be a really cool. Anyway, you, you finished that film. But uh, <laughs> um, part, and, two. And he, part two. Hey, um, but the I heard about it. I was in San Francisco and I heard that there was this film was going to be shown called Black Wall Street. And I, I was like, oh, I, I, so I went fully black audience at this big theater. And there was this guy, I've forgotten his name now, but he had uh, produced the film and we learned all about Black Wall Street. And I had never heard of it before and I, I couldn't understand it. Well, that was maybe eight, 10 years ago, something like that. And um, I know that film probably did something to you know, get the word out. And then I think that there's been a shift in our culture that we're, I don't know, I'm just seeing, in fact, the reason I was running late today was because I was watching this piece on the news about a, a film that I think is coming out this week. I think it's on TV that's um, about uh, reparations and about this um, former slave who got reparations a couple of hundred years ago and then what the impact of that has been. So I think that there's there's definitely, we're clear that we, we want more diversity. We want more stories of diversity. And when you said about, you know, there's stories in, in our backyard. I'm, when, when I met you, I was like, well, I've never seen a story about Arkansas. I want to see a story about Arkansas. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I want to see it. I want to know about Arkansas. I want to know what's going on. You know what I mean? So, um, this thing about Black Wall Street, I think, especially because it was the 100 year anniversary a year ago, just over, um, I think there was more, you know, publicity about it. Um, so I feel as though there are so many lost and forgotten stories that 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 need to be told. Yeah. Yes, yes, I, I feel that too. Um, so if you didn't know about it and I didn't know about it, more people need to know about it, right? right. And as I, you know, this year or last year when I took it out, I took it out and toured it through African American museums and I went to different places and I went to like Dalton, Alabama, and there was a group of people that came to see it. They they were older people and they had never heard of it. And so that's Ooh. what I heard so many times when we wow. took the history out, the film out, is I've never heard of this. That's so interesting. Cause I was getting, I was getting the feeling, oh, now everybody knows about it. Yeah, it's still not. It's still right, not. it's still not, okay. And even um, our kids, I mean, we were talking about older people. This history is still not being told to our, to our kids so they can know the history. Right, and so, you also took a very particular approach with your film. So your film is not a history film. It's not the film I saw that was called Black Wall Street was a historical film about the massacre. Your film is not about the massacre actually at all. Tell us about your film. Well, it you can't do the rebuild without foreshadowing how the, what this community was and what happened mm -hmm. to this community. So we do bring in the massacre in the beginning to just kind of show you give you set the stage and so but it's about the, these people even though it was burnt they went and got whatever they needed uh uh train train cart or you know use bricks whatever they needed to rebuild this community again and it was thriving i mean it it was you know millionaire i mean million millionaires as far as in that that particular time point being uh had a community of businesses on this this street and so but this documentary kind of tells the story of those who were little kids at that time and how it was uh being raised going to these these black owned businesses on greenwood and 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 how it the the saying that uh, it takes a community to raise uh, uh, kids, and so when you get in trouble uh, at the store, by the time you got home, your parents have known you got a whooping from your parents and the neighbor, <laughs> and and just this whole community 
that it took a, a village to raise a community, raise kids. And so you're going to hear those stories in this documentary. I actually interviewed over 50 some people and that's my inexperience of I just want to hear everybody's story. I'm just like, I need to hear yours, yours, yours. And here it is. I have 50 some people and I'm like, how am I going to make this film where I can see these different perspectives of 50 some people and so God just, you know, showed me how to create these little mini movies within a movie. And that's how I was able to put a snippet of somebody saying something about their community in the documentary. So, yes. And I, I think that, um, I think, for example, if I think about that film um, that was about the, the massacre, Black Wall Street, it, it, it did show Black Wall Street. It did. But it was really about the massacre. And what you're saying, what your perspective in your film is more about like, well, okay, so there was Black Wall Street and there were, there were all these very successful businesses. They were wiped out, they were destroyed. And how is this community that's in the same place, in the business, there are businesses today and what are they doing and how is it that they are thriving today? Yeah. And so it was your, your film to me is, is very much about hope and about um, moving forward despite ridiculously bad odds and bad and tragic treatment and all of that. But the people who are living there today, that was, that was really inspiring to me that a hundred years ago, there was this tragedy. You can't imagine anybody could survive that. You, you, you can't. I've, you just see it in your head as this place that's been flattened. No, it is it is functioning today, and yeah. people are are doing their thing. Tell us a, tell us a, a little bit about some of the people you met. So, uh, you know, right now Tulsa is uh, still very uh, segregated, and so mm -hmm. um, you know you you have little cliques of people kind of like there. And so um, the people I, you know, I met, I got a chance to meet the senators and, um, uh, but it was more about just everyday people that I, I, I got a chance to meet, you know, because they are, I don't, I don't want to say cliquish, um, but Mr. Bacchus kind of protected me and who he allowed me to meet because he's the one that brought everybody to me that was a part of the documentary. And so he- uh, He was local, right? He was local. He was local, Terry right. was local. So, yeah. In, and so in, he brought in, the people he knew. Mm -hmm. and in the film world, that person in film is called a fixer. Okay. Like, like if you go, like let's say you decide, oh, I'm gonna go make a film in India but you yeah. don't know anybody in India. You hire a fixer in India and they know where you get your crew and your, you know. So in a way, Terry was your fixer, which is a funny kind of term. It sounds like something from the mafia, but, right. <laughs> but Terry was the local person because you're not from Tulsa. Right, right, right. You know, and I can imagine that people who have a history like that might be suspicious of people coming in from the outside. Right, right. And so you need that person that's going to take you and introduce you to the different people. And when they did, you know, they just kind of welcomed me in. And so when I go down there, those, you know, I don't know any agenda or any precept of people. I just go and speak and hi, how you doing? I don't know that you don't talk to this person. I don't know none of that, you know. I'm just going to be who I am and and speak to everybody with the same level of respect. And so um, they welcomed me in, the, you know, the people uh, who came a part of the documentary, because there are people that did not want to be a part of it because I wasn't necessarily a known name because there were different, right. so many different people who were doing documentaries. You know, you had LeBron James, you had wow. Russell Westbrook. There were so many, and so there were people that won't only want to be a part of those elite. Mm. I, I'm not going to say that because everybody have their own place. 
You know what I'm saying? And so there were people that were a part of those projects, but there were people that were a part of our project. And our project is just the just down home, good people that have that can remember stories to tell about a certain period of time. And so I just love the fact that they're so authentic in my documentary. You know, you can feel them and yes. feel that particular time of yes. space that they had. And um, you have a, a lot of archival footage and archival photos in your film. Um, how were you able to access all of that? That stuff costs a fortune. How were you able to get hold of that? And I'm so glad you brought that up because that's something that you don't hear a lot is the business side of film. And that is something that I am learning. Um, my editor, I had a great editor, um, Todd Roberts. He is someone that records everything in Oklahoma. So at the time, I tried to make sure I hired everyone in Oklahoma. Mm. Oklahoma had um, money that you could get that you could get planted into your project if you hired people in Oklahoma if you spent a certain amount of money and so that was my mindset is hire everybody from Oklahoma so Todd Roberts he was a videographer and he recorded a lot of different things and so um he's the editor that brought in a lot of that footage footage and now I'm finding out um like I think it's Harold Anderson he recorded a lot of old footage and it just for a five second clip, they want $750 for a five second clip. Now, Joanne. <laughs> We're not paying $750 for a five second clip. <laughs> and I got about 10 of them in there. That's yeah. about, uh, and so I'm like, okay, do I want to change the film? Or do I want to keep it in there? Because it is it becomes okay. Oh, let's let let's um let's just make a distinction here because this is really important. So you're able to show the film at museums, at private screenings, and things like that. What we're talking about now with this issue of the costs is if you want to put it in distribution, right? That's that's what this is about. So when you put a film into distribution, now you have to achieve a different standard and the distributor wants to know that everything in the film is cleared, that there's a clearance for everybody, everybody who appears, there's a clearance for every location, that there's a clearance, everything has to be kind of legally allowed. You know, one time I, um, I submitted a film to a distributor and, uh, and the, you know, people are, my filmmakers always think that the distributor is going to say, oh, I love this film so much. I'm really looking forward to distribute. That's not how distributors talk. Right? <laughs> the distributor said, um, do you have uh, permission to use the Jack Daniels bottle? And do you have permission to use that music at 17 minutes and 13 seconds? I said, I don't know about the Jack Daniels bottle, but I do know I got the music license. So, you know, <laughs> so yes, that's fine. And then the producer reached out to Jack Daniels and we got permission to, to use that bottle or we'd have had to cut it out. Right. Right. Cause we had to, the, the distributor need, that's how distributors look at films. They don't look at the films the way we look at films. Right. They look at films like, how can I get sued? Yes. That's how they look at a film. How can I get sued? Oh, you have this photo, you have this archival footage in here that you don't have the right to use. And then somebody's going to come and sue them. They're not going to sue you. They're going to sue them, right? So, um, so, and and what are you working on now? Are you planning on switching out those pieces, or or what do you want to do? Well, if I was listening to you, I would probably start a crowdfunding campaign yes. and yes. ask people to donate yes. to help me yes. keep that footage in there. I want to keep it in there because. Um, because then you have to look at possibly paying the editor to go and take it out. And right. so you got. Either way, either way. You don't have to pay. You don't have to pay. So um, but it, 
my my business profession is taxes. So if I have a lot of tax clients that come and let me do their taxes, then I can pay for everybody go to Karen. Everybody go to Karen. Can, <laughs> Emily, can you put Karen's tax? But but you, what what you're saying, Karen, is really true. I want you to raise the money. I don't want you spending the, your own money. And I know you're dedicated and you would. But, you know, when, when you were talking earlier about this, this whole community thing, um, I don't know if you've ever seen where the 16, 1619 project is. But anyway, so um, I, I have a friend who does a thing. He says it's like, if you remember CD-ROMs from the from decades ago, CD-ROMs, you would get a CD and, and it would ha you would ha be able to see a film, but then you would maybe see the director talking about the film and you could have photos from when they were shooting and you could see stories about. So now he has all of that online and he is the one responsible for having the 1619 project online. And um, it's, it's costly, it costs about $25,000. But imagine if like the museum there in Tulsa or another museum could have access to the full interviews with all of your people, right? And um, articles and other research and, you know, that there would be a whole thing. I know you have a website we, we've posted in the chat, um, but, you know, imagine if people could access all of this, but it all costs money. It all costs money, you know? And, um, uh, and and fundraising is is a challenge, but you know, what about what about in the future? What what other films are you imagining getting into some trouble? Um, <laughs> What's God? What is where is God pointing you next? Let's put it that way, because I know that's how you roll. Yeah. So my very first project, I actually need to uh, finish it, and that is based on my community. It was. Uh, path to the draft seven solo youth players and that was nine different films and I probably have completed two <laughs> so I actually just want to focus in on finishing some stuff you know yes so path to the draft is it ultimately going to be seven how many minute pieces uh it is it is actually seven is a video for each player so that's seven right. videos right and then i had did a movie of putting it all together into one movie taking clips of the seven so that was one um so that would be a eight different films um but the, but the seven for each one of the players how how many minutes is that uh when I start, okay, we talked about this new, the beginning of my <laughs> filming <laughs> career. So I have two of them that's an hour long each. An hour, so can, okay. So each, the other ones, I'm going to probably be uh, shorter, uh, more like a short film. Yeah. But the two that are long, they, they had a lot of things going on in their lives. And so, uh, but after that, I, you know, we had another seven coming from our community that became eligible for draft. And I started wow. that. So we just, I just really, this community thing just really, wow. it's, it's embedded <laughs> in me. I don't know how to get rid of it. Well, but you you happen to come from a community that's doing crazy, ridiculous, amazing things. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. Why do you have so many kids who end up eligible for the draft what is that about that's really what your story is right what what's that about well mine is the fact that they graduate college and coming mm. from our community we have so many you know usually you think athletes are dumb jocks or whatever mm. but our athletes are graduating college they're setting an example for other kids that okay you can mm. play sports but accomplish your business in a classroom first and so that's kind of the story that right. I'm highlight and then just showing sometimes your dreams change. So not all of them yeah. got drafted. I want to show that it's okay to switch. One of them end up working at the post office. So he's all about investing and things, letting the kids know it's okay to change direction, even though you have a path that you started on. Right, so, right. And what other projects are you working on? I have a sports mom talk. Well, I'm changing it. I have a sports talk show 
and uh, I am working, I'm in the Dallas Maverick cohort program. And so this, to, this weekend I get to pitch about the talk show uh, and possibly if I get uh, selected, I could possibly pitch it to Mark Cuban. And so ah. I'm working on doing my one to two minute pitch. I'm already, I'm at three minutes. So I'm going to have to cut it down. Okay. You want to pitch? You want to pitch now? Let's pitch to us. Oh, Let's no. We're all investors. No. Come on. Come on. I want to hear it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hi, my name is Karen Reese, and I am the visionary founder of Can We Talk Sports. It is a groundbreaking sports commentator talk show, and it is tailored towards, for, oh, see, pro no, no, no. soul which is parents of student athletes. And see, I can't, I forgot. Now. Oh, that was good. But that's, but the thing about the show that I think is so fantastic is also what you were saying about path to the draft. You're talking about moms of young people who are excelling and you're, you're talking about this whole arena that I've never heard anybody talk about, never about, what is it like to be a parent of a kid who's on that path? You know, how do you motivate them to also be interested in school as well as in sports? What do moms do who have those kids? What, how can we help the kids? How can we help the moms? I just think it's fantastic. And I think it's completely unique. Yeah, I mean, we need to hear the voice of parents. Um, and that's that's my passion because I did when I was a part of the booster club and my son was trying to get a scholarship. There was no parents that were coming back to tell us, okay, this is what you do when you go to college. You got to watch out for groupies. You got to watch out for this. Nobody was coming back and sharing that information. Wow. And so most parents are hidden in groups because they don't want to share their voices because they're fearful that their kids won't get playing time and things like mm -hmm. that. And so mm -hmm. we need to, you know, tell parents yes. that this is important. They do need to share their story, whether their story or bad or good is still their story. And their story can help somebody else because there's power in your story. And we can't hear from nobody else but them. And so Can We Talk Sports is going to give them that platform to come in, to educate, to inform other parents on the how to succeed in the role of sports. And we're creating the first biggest biggest business alliance in sports history and that is parents uh teaching other parents athletes teaching other athletes professional teaching other professional this one-stop shop for sports parents That's you it. know the one one little tweak i would make you're an amazing picture now which given when i first met you is a miracle really it's an <laughs> amazing beautiful beautiful but the one little change I would put is I would add in right at the beginning, when I was a parent of a superbly successful student athlete, I had no idea. Nobody was telling me what it was going to be like to deal with groupies and to deal with this and whatever all the things are. Yeah. Um, and so I have created Could yeah. We Talk Sports. I think that would really help uh lead us in the fact that that is your experience and what you found was that there wasn't anybody who who warned you about right. everything you the were gonna have to deal with was scarce yes. and there was untold stories from parents and that is definitely that is a part of my pitch i just got it out of order i ain't got so I got to, I'm continuing practicing on it that's right that's right that's what you have to do that's what you have to do yeah. um Let's see if anybody has a question. Otherwise, I will. Who would like to ask a question? Raise your hand. I see Jamila. I see Lawanda. I see Lloyd. All right. I'm going to keep going. So have we have we actually mentioned all your projects or do you have any more hidden? <laughs> no, yeah, don't do it like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, with all... See, these are all passion projects. And so even with beside my passion project, you know, I do taxes and I, I sell tax software. So I'm 
trying to get the resources to take care of itself so I can do the things that I'm more passionate about. And eventually I want to go to Alaska. I want to film in Alaska. Uh, I want to oh, show- Oh, I missed that. I missed that. I missed that. My video got out. Go to where? Alaska. Oh, okay. Why do you yeah. want to go to Alaska? Because I can imagine that there's a ghetto in Alaska. And I'm just like, oh. there's a ghetto in Alaska? And I'm like, I have a cousin that lived there and they're in the army. And I'm like, okay, once you get out of the army, why are you not moving from Alaska? It's too cold over there. And so <laughs> they're thinking about buying a house. And I'm like, okay, I need to come to Alaska. I need to see the moose. I need to see yes. uh, Santa Claus. I yes. want to, I want to show people through my eyes of what it is to visit Alaska and what they do when it's cold and you know, I you're just, so I, funny. You're so funny because when uh, COVID hit and I was living in San Francisco, I ended up uh, going and living not with, but near my best friend in Missoula, Montana. And I'm a Caribbean girl through and through. But I said, well, you know, how long is it before it's going to snow? And he said a month. And I said, OK, well, I'll come stay a month, you know. And I ended up staying 17 months and I absolutely fell in love with Montana really and yes and I whenever I think about Montana I see the snow and it's so beautiful and it's just mind-blowingly gorgeous and um, I lived in a small town for the first time in my life I never thought I would like to live in a small town but I loved that I loved everything about it and it was it was odd to be in, it wasn't that it wasn't diverse. There were not very many people of African descent there, but Native Americans, you know, my favorite place that I would go, I was just telling somebody this this morning, was called the Nine Pipes um, Museum. There's a museum and a hotel and a restaurant. And I would go there and stay there for a couple of days and uh, work on stuff. And um, it was wonderful to be around that much Native American culture, which is not something I was I had really spent much time with. Um, but the the nature is just so wow, magnificent, you know. So that might be some of what you find when you go yeah. there. And yeah. I never felt cold in Montana. Really? Yeah, because you you put your thermal underwear on in September and you don't take it off until <laughs> May. <laughs> Right. See, <laughs> see, I want to go see the Eskimos. I want to yes. see it all. Yes, yes, yes. Through salmon, Alaskan salmon. I want to go do it all. Uh, a black woman in Alaska. I love it. It's, it's, right. Yeah. I, it's, uh, you know, funny. There was a, very much a culture in Montana of you do you. You know, it was very much that. And I, I really appreciated that. Yeah, there was this kind of, you do your own thing, I'll do my thing, you know. You know, people don't tell each other what to do. You know, that was that was nice. So there, there, there could be other things about Alaska that that are not not what you expect. You know, not nothing to do. Maybe and and another thing about being in that snow and being in that cold is that, you know, it used to be historically in America. If you stole someone's horse, that was a hanging offense because you were basically killing them. Mm. You know, wow. if you didn't have a horse and in, in places with that much snow and that much cold, you know, people have to help each other because that that you can die in that. You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so really. people are very neighborly and very helpful, you know, and things like that. I found that's, good. Up there. that's a very good point because I could see how how community works in a, an environment like that. How do community work? So you you yes. know community works different in different places. So yes, so you definitely and that that's a good point. How does you are you just gave me my my <laughs> my title for Alaska? <laughs> that's all right. We're making movies over here. We're making right. movies. And uh, I don't think anyone has a question, but I don't want to silence you all. Just Jamila, come on, come on, say hi to Karen. Lovely to see you. Jamila's working on a documentary, so. Okay. Yes. Oh, we can't hear you, Jamila. 
Oh, no, you, you're unmuted, but we can't hear you. What a shame. Jamila's making a... Can you hear document. me now? Yes. Okay. okay, my mic was muted. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, it's such a pleasure uh, to, to, to meet you and to hear uh, your story and, and, and part of the process. There was two things that I was came to mind when you were talking about the Greenwood Project and talking about telling the stories uh, of the people that survived. I was, uh, what came to mind was also, how are you in part of that survival? How are you telling the story of overcoming the trauma of the experience as a key part to that drive to survive? So that, that yeah. That's a good question. And, and, you know, the reason why we called it the uh, Greenwood Avenue Project is because I could see that there were so many more films that uh, have voices that could share their story other than this first one. So this was just the first one, just hearing the voices of this community. I could see, you know, later on finding out who who is the the savior of that community that can rally that community together in order for it to be this community to be healed because I don't think it's healed yet. And so um I I think that that's probably a whole nother uh film to bring that part out as far as how this community what can this community do to heal and to continue to move forward. Right now there's there's still a lot of separate things going on and and leadership and things like that. And so I think that story is yet to be told. Because uh, when I'm listening to the story and I did see the documentary, um, uh, because the communities of black and brown people, we're, we're living under generational trauma. And so your story, in a sense, I mean, we like my community, they may not have bombed me out but my people are still living in trauma. And so I see your story as, as a catalyst to help them, you know, to keeping that hope alive, to keeping that spirit that says, regardless, I mean, we're, we're living in a strange time. I mean, if Trump gets back in, he would like to get rid of all of us or put us back in our place. So we're, we're not in this kumbaya world yet, you know, and yeah. so, I think it's so important as uh, your story because it helps us realize that no matter how oppressed, how much we are under siege, that we can still survive. And I think that, and we can still survive and grow and yeah, develop. Yeah, yeah the resilience of people. And you know, the one thing that we don't even, as far as black people uh, focus on is mental health or getting the help we need. And right. so here we're talking about a community that needs some type of therapy or help to help them be able to mentally move forward and heal from that trauma because they are still um, experiencing, now they're experiencing the history of people coming and taking their history and profiting off of it. And that was one of my thing about this film. Somebody told me that somebody made films from them and they would go and make money and they never gave back anything to the community. And so one thing that I have tried to do with this document, anything that I make, I, I made sure everybody that was in the film had their own personal movie poster that they could show. Uh, anything that is profit off of this film, we are gonna go back and give it to those people that are a part of this documentary and try to create some type of event or some type of um, fun or something like that to help with this community because people are constantly taking, taking, taking and nobody is going back to impart into this community uh, in, in, in forms of helping them heal because yeah. this a couple, was there's a couple of things that are gone. There's a couple of things I think about uh, Jamila, what you're saying, which is that the third thing is that um, now there's interest in what is the trauma to documentary filmmakers mm -hmm. working on these stories and telling these stories. That, that's something of interest. Uh, secondly, I, I think that um, the, the fact that we can have a conversation about, well, 
you know, how do how do we deal with the trauma of something like that? That conversation didn't was didn't exist ten years ago. Right, it didn't exist, and so I think a lot of what I see with with Karen's storytelling is that when you Karen, when you say a story in my from my backyard, I hear that is how telling the stories is how we heal from the trauma. You know, telling the stories at all, seeing myself, seeing my ancestors on film. There's something so empowering about that. And Karen and I have talked about this for hours on end, but it's like so empowering to see yourself on film. And so when we're from communities that have experienced those levels of trauma, just having capacity to see your story and to tell your story is so much the healing process mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's good now my second question was about um the uh posa that's the parents of student athletes is that just a local initiative or are you going to work with parents throughout the country yes so i do want to work with parents throughout the country and that's why I said it's the biggest business alliance because I don't necessarily know everything, but there are parents, there are athletes and professionals that are all, that are doing things. They're selling books, they're teaching seminars. So what if we came together and when we did need to do a seminar, I could partner with other people who are already doing it to come in and teach those particular parts. And so that's that's the thing that I'm trying to put together uh, to be able to do that because right now we're scattered and there's a lot of things that's going on with sports and we need to have the parents voice because there are decisions being made without parents right right Mm. I I think this is such a strong thing I really hope you do well with your pitch and all I can say is that your pitching is great I know you you said you know oh I didn't get it right or whatever but you're really, really good at, at pitching. Oops, I did the wrong thing there. Um, so, uh, you know. I'm going to send to you, I recorded it uh, with my voice. I'm going to send it to you so I, so you can cr- critique. I will. Because I know you I will. will. <laughs> I'm not into critique. I'm into feedback. Okay. <laughs> I'm always like, well, how do we make this better? You know, I'm sure it can yeah. be better. It might be A plus already, but we could probably make it better, you know. Um, but you yeah. you really do pitch well. And uh, you know, I hope that somewhere along the lane, whether it's whether it's Mark Cuban or or but but some sports because they make plenty money, you know, mm-hmm. they, so there's there's money around. So, you know, getting involved in something like this, I, I really hope that happens. That's that's a great project. Well, Karen, thank you so much. I always enjoy so much spending time with you. So thank I'm really you. grateful. Joanne, I just have one thing that I failed to mention is that yes. with the documentary Greenwood Avenue Project, we created a curriculum that can go along with the film. And so when it goes into schools, it will be a help to be a teaching tool for teachers to teach about this history. Yes, the Greenwood Avenue one. That's what you're working on now, getting it in schools? Yeah. Oh, look. Yeah. Well, Lawanda raised her hand. Accessible. That's oh. fantastic. Let's see. Lawanda wanted to say something. Lawanda, come on in. She's muted. Hi, I just wanted to say um, I've been friends with Karen for about 30 years and I've watched her journey, her community journey. Um, We still have a story to tell um, from when she first came to California. She hasn't got that one going yet, but she still have that story yet to tell. (laughs) She missed that one. Add it to your list, Karen. Add it to your list. Yeah, that's going to be a movie, girlfriend. (laughs) thank you for putting her out there Lawanda thanks for that (laughs) all right thank you Karen so much and um yes I'm I, I it's just always such a pleasure and it's great to watch your progress um you know as a filmmaker as a storyteller and um 
I really, really want to see this sports piece go forward, you know? So um, definitely uh, thank you very much. And goodbye, everybody. Thank you for coming. Thanks for being here. And uh, don't forget, go to Karen, get your taxes. All right. <laughs> Bye, everybody. We put we put your website in the in the mail in the in the chat. So, okay. all right. Bye, everybody. Bye. We saved it. <laughs>